You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to another episode of Wiley Connected, Wiley's podcast looking at the intersection of technology, law, and policy in our increasingly connected world. I'm Megan Brown, partner in the firm's cyber, telecom, and tech practices. Today, I'm delighted to welcome a new colleague, Sam Kaplan, special counsel in our telecom media and technology practice. He's already hit the ground running, advising our clients on privacy and security risk management and vital relationships with the government. He comes to us from the Department of Homeland Security, which is increasingly a major player on these issues. There, he served as the Assistant Secretary for Cyber Infrastructure Risk and Resilience Policy, and he helped lead DHS efforts on critical infrastructure, cyber, network security, cybercrime, and more. Prior to that, Sam served as Chief Privacy Officer at DHS, where he oversaw the department's privacy compliance and information sharing programs, as well as breach response. And he also advised on emerging tech like artificial intelligence. I look forward to talking today with Sam about the role of DHS in cyber and what companies should expect from the government going forward. So thanks for joining us today. We have with us on our Wiley Connect podcast, Sam Kaplan, who just joined us from the Department of Homeland Security. And he's going to talk to us about the role of the Department of Homeland Security, some of the important cyber developments that are going on, many of the proceedings and initiatives that the federal government's doing that will affect the tech sector. So thanks, Sam, for joining us. Perfect. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for uh, having me on my first podcast, and it's an honor to be a part of the Wiley team and the Wiley family. Yes. Well, we are delighted that you joined us this week, and we have lots of things to put you to work doing. But among the early tasks is this podcast. Sam, so as we've discussed, DHS does a lot of things. Some of them are in the news more than others. Now that you're on board here at Wiley, I was hoping you could give a quick level set for our listeners on where the department is 18 years in, and maybe a quick overview of how its mission and structure relate to technology companies in the private sector, given the breadth of what the department does across so many components. That's a great question, Megan. Throughout my time at the department, much of the feedback I heard or the questions I worked at were around the structure and mission of the department, due in large part to its size and structure and sort of disparate mission sets. So DHS is truly a behemoth of a department. There's 23 operational components and support offices, 250,000 federal employees and offices throughout the country and throughout the world. Mission-wise, the department covers everything from executive protection to natural disaster response and crisis response, immigration, borders and customs enforcement, immigration benefits, airport travel and security, and naturally, cybersecurity and infrastructure security. Supporting those missions, there's an additional cadre of offices and support components that are dedicated to scientific research and development, policy development, regulatory enforcement and benefit adjudication, and privacy and civil liberties compliance and advising services. So as you said, the department's about 18 years old. It's really a toddler in the scope of the federal government's history. And all those components with those disparate mission sets are really beginning to gel and leverage the authorities and capabilities across components to that more joint operational environment. Now, where this is relevant for the tech sector and the private sector is that that diversity 
actually increases the number of venues where companies in the private sector might be able to interact with the department to educate those government officials on unique aspects of their company or their particular sector, or truthfully just to utilize the services offered by many components throughout the department. Two examples that really stick out are in cybersecurity infrastructure and those resilient issues. So cyber and infrastructure security operations at the department, naturally everyone thinks of CISA as one of the central actors in that space. And that and is- And Sam, real quick, what is CISA? Spell that out for our listeners. It's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So it's about two years into its existence right now at the department. It was previously known as the National Protection and Programs Directorate, but it has changed pursuant to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection Act. And it is now a standalone operational component of the department. Now that it is that operational component, it really is both in authorities and stature, the tip of the spear in the department for that public-private interaction. They are central to that conversation for cybersecurity services and standards that are going out throughout the civilian federal government agencies, but they also serve as that sector-specific agency for a variety of critical infrastructure sectors communications, information technology, emergency services, the chemical sector, and then the nuclear reactors, management, and waste sectors. However, across the department, it's important to remember that there's other components that are central to the broader DHS cyber mission. For example, TSA is point on cyber protection and cybersecurity services as it pertains to the transportation sector and transportation security, but also pipeline security. The Coast Guard, when it comes to ports and waterways and critical infrastructure and that the cyber aspects of that security sector. There's the United States Secret Service, which runs point on cyber investigations across the financial services industry. And then HSI, which is part of ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, they really run point on cyber investigations into online child exploitation, a lot of dark web investigations for drug trafficking and human trafficking, and they also do a lot of online counterfeit cyber enforcement. So there is really a variety of cyber services and cyber capabilities across the department. Additionally, looking at some of those support components, S&T, for example, has equities in the cyberspace. They're running and partnering with the operational components, and they really help those components by conducting research and development in a variety of cyber areas that really support the department and its mission. Everything from information communications technology systems and 5G, looking at broader supply chain security issues, position navigation and timing and global positioning system resilience capabilities, mobile app security, emerging technology security to include everything from artificial intelligence to the upcoming quantum computing revolution to the utilization of blockchain and operational capabilities across the department. Coordinating all these movements across components and sectors and support components is the Office of Policy. That's where I came from. And this office is really responsible for developing and helping to implement that cross-component policy to better leverage those unique authorities across the department and to make sure that all these components are really rowing in the same direction to sort of a unified mission set and objective goal. The Office of Policy is also one of the points of contact for interacting with the interagency community, other sector-specific agencies, Department of Defense, Department of Energy. And the Office of Policy is also the main point of contact for the White House National Security Council, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, 
and they really help the department represent itself in the broader initiatives government-wide policies executive orders and sort of big scale operations and again what this means for the private sector the tech sector is that there are numerous venues from CISA, the Office of Policy, S&T, as they partner with research institutions and academia. There are a number of venues that really could serve as effective entry points for the private sector to increase that cooperation, coordination, and interaction with the department. CISA naturally has sort of unique statutory authorities to convene the public-private sector partnerships and to directly interact with private sector companies, but cooperation and coordination really happens across the department. And DHS really strives to work with the private sector to better effectuate its mission and increase the nation's resilience to internal and external threats and to be able to respond to crises and or large-scale disaster events. So let's talk about those activities. You mentioned collaboration a lot between the different department components. I have on my brain always collaboration with the private sector and sort of that critical linkage between the department's mission, which it can't really get done, as we saw even in COVID, without substantial cooperation with the private sector. So maybe you could touch on just a bit how the collaboration works between DHS and the private sector. I'd love to follow up with some maybe cyber-specific questions, but sort of talk to us a little bit about that relationship between DHS and the private sector. The relationship between DHS and the private sector, and I think this recognition has been a part of the department for a while, especially in sort of the broader resilience efforts that were run out of NPPD and now at the new CISA. But in simply looking at specific issues like the critical infrastructure sectors, the 16 sectors, the department long recognized that in order to execute on its mission where the vast overwhelming majority of critical infrastructure in this country that supplies vital public safety services, water, power generation, communications, is all owned by the private sector. That connective tissue between the department and the work that the government's doing and the private sector is crucial and vital. And I think there was actually recognition of this when the department was first stood up. There are unique authorities that CISA in particular has to be able to act as a convener, to bring in the private sector whether it's through organizations like the NRMC, the National Risk Management Center, or through the formalized sector-specific agency, critical infrastructure sectors that CISA runs, the communication sectors, the critical communication sectors, and those through organizations like TSA, looking at pipelines and transportation sectors and ports with the Coast Guard. That connective tissue and that structure where those organizations, whether internal to DHS or some of those other agencies that DHS helps to coordinate, going even outside of the department to transportation, health and human services. The unique authorities that DHS has to bring the private sector into the room to have these conversations about threats, vulnerabilities, um, actions that they are seeing coming across, whether it be their cyber networks or other networks, to be able to talk about these with the federal government in environments where they know through these authorities that DHS will be able to protect some of this information. They will have an equal exchange of information to protect it from disclosure laws like FOIA and be able to have these conversations outside of FACA, which I think are important sort of tools that the department has. But that 
public-private partnership, I think, has long been recognized at DHS as one of the most crucial and important aspects of the department's mission. And it's actually started to spread out. Headquarters has gotten more active in engaging with the private sector and the tech sector. And I think we've seen this both in critical infrastructure, but we're in election season right now. And I think the uh, connectivity with especially the technology companies, I think it is there and it, it is prevalent. I think one of the things we have long observed in our interactions with DHS for clients is there is a huge benefit to DHS not being a regulator, right? DHS is identified by executive order as the sector-specific agency, term of art, for several of the identified critical infrastructure sectors. But to me, it's been absolutely critical to companies' comfort level, to being willing to talk with DHS and work with DHS through either the information sharing and analysis centers or directly, that it's not a regulator. It's not going to come at you and punish you if you do something wrong or if you come and say we've got a problem, you're not going to immediately face some enforcement action or investigation. Can you comment on that and whether you think that's going to endure or if you think that might get sort of chipped away at? First and foremost, I think that general approach and philosophy is going to endure at the department. I think the evolution with CISA becoming a standalone operational compartment is just going to solidify that approach and philosophy in executing its mission. And, and the reason I feel fairly confident in saying this, if we're going to read tea leaves and cast into the future, I think as CISA stood up, the mentality at that organization realized with, again, this eye towards resilience efforts and building overall capacity and resilience of not only the federal government to respond, but full of whole of society response, that that private sector partnership is crucial to that. And part and parcel to that is just like you pointed out. DHS is not a regulator. DHS wants to be able to obtain information, share information, and disseminate information. On its website right now, as CISA has been laying out their strategic plan, they couch themselves and brand themselves. And I don't think this is a branding ploy. I think this is deeply felt within the ranks of CISA. They believe themselves to be the national risk management advisor of the United States. They need to have those safe spaces to have those conversations with the private sector organizations, whether they be located online in the cyber realm or the physical infrastructure spaces to have those conversations and exchange that information. That is where the true efficacy and, and benefit in leveraging those authorities that DHS has seen. So I do think this is an aspect that is going to endure as part of the department's mission. I mean, I think one thing that's really helpful, and I'm optimistic and hopeful that that remains the case. I do worry that there is sort of a creeping tendency towards a regulatory approach to cyber, for example, as the government sort of seems to be moving from a or is at peril of moving from a true partnership model to more of a trust but verify model. And we can we'll have another podcast where I can yeah. we can talk about that. But I was hoping we could address some sort of emergent issues and sort of let's look over the horizon about regardless of the election outcome, what are going to be the department's priorities in several areas? I mean, we at Wiley have been working on many of these issues, so I have some guesses of what you're going to say, but they've got their fingers in a lot of different pies here. And I was hoping we could sort of chug through a few of them and give the sure. listeners a sense of what kind of issues we're seeing and what folks should be watching to come out of DHS. So where do you want to start? Yeah. Um, so if I were to bucket 
in my brain is I had to sort of future cast down the road. I think there's going to be what we'll start to see are two sort of emerging trends of where DHS is going to get involved. I think there's those areas where they will be more inclined and more focused on doing the outreach, the information sharing, both in tactical threat and vulnerability information sharing, but also more research and development. And I think some of these are certain aspects of the 5G architecture. I mean, S&T has been funding sort of research and test beds, especially down in Texas and across the country, but they've also been looking at other areas of sort of technological evolution. And this is artificial intelligence and how the department can use AI to both effectuate its mission, but also as a fairly unique threat vector to the security of the homeland that the department might need to address. AI, looking even more broadly at sort of the technology and cyber landscape where this sort of voluntary collaboration drones, mobile security. I think what we've seen with some recent executive orders that is going to be both maybe in one of those gray areas between the true collaborative and semi-directive areas are going to be through the EMP order, protecting critical infrastructure from EMP, and that has led into the development. Moving on from those areas where it is going to be truly collaborative between the department and the private sector organizations for these information exchanges, I do think there are some gray areas where it is going to be both both collaborative but also semi-directive. We have seen this in the EMP order, the Electromagnetic Pulse Executive Order that came out of the House in 2018. This was one of the orders that really set up national critical functions. And while there is a directive capability and responsibility given to DHS to work with the private sector to identify those critical functions, the crossover and vulnerabilities, I think, again, that is both an interchange of information, but also a directive to identify those critical vulnerabilities and those critical dependencies across the 16 infrastructure sectors to be able to again, increase overall baseline resilience. I think that same approach is carrying over into some of the work that DHS has been doing with NIST on position navigation and timing systems. I think the threats and vulnerabilities that we've seen on sort of PMT systems are, while similarly situated to EMP, are discrete. But this is another one of those areas that does require more research, and it's going to be leveraging truly collaborative research and development aspects of S&T, along with more directive oversight and information gathering by the department with those critical infrastructure sectors. Moving more squarely over into another area where I think CISA, especially with some of its unique capabilities, and this gets into some of the cyber realm that you wanted to talk about, Megan, I think there are going to be areas where DHS is, and especially if there are some current proposals that make it through and are signed into law, where DHS is going to have the ability to be a little bit too a lot more directive with private sector organizations. I think recently where we've seen, and I think this was a benefit to the overall federal cyber ecosystem, the implementation and the publication of the binding operational directive to each of the federal government agencies to set up a vulnerability disclosure process, I think was important. While that's directed at federal agencies, that's inevitably going to have private sector implications to it. And it is one of those areas where I think what we've seen with DHS and their ability to use that binding operational directive, I think they view it more as a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer to go after some of these issues before the vulnerability disclosures, the operational directives that came out were very tailored toward discrete threats and vulnerabilities, whereas this one was more policy-based, directing other agencies to look and implement 
sort of higher level policies to be able to secure the internet facing architecture that the federal government is facing. So I think the binding operational directives is one. And then there are proposals out there to give DHS more direct power. A lot of these are contained in the NDAA. They're recommendations that are coming out of the Cyber Solarium Commission report that would be more directive and as authorities for CISA. And that, for example, is the subpoena power that DHS is couched to get to be able to obtain threat and mitigation information from private sector organizations. So let's talk a little bit about procurement policy, because we've. I could ask you questions about the previous vulnerability disclosures and subpoena power. I think we will have to come back to at some point in the future, because I see some peril in both of those proposals. So we may have to have a debate at some point over that. <laughs> but let's move a little bit to uh, procurement policy. You know, we're seeing a lot of activity both directed by Congress and sort of taken up on DOD's own initiative. So, you know, it ranges from the Federal Acquisition Supply Council, which was created by Congress, but just recently put out rules for its own internal processes. Footnote, I have some issues with what they're doing, but we can debate that sometime. The implementation of Section 889 of the prior National Defense Authorization Act, which is really just to shorthand it for folks, it's the prohibition on Huawei, ZTE, and a few other Chinese equipment manufacturers. So maybe you can shed a little light on DHS's role. From an advocacy perspective, we are regularly telling the government that it needs to try and centralize some of these efforts because there's a lot of fragmentation, it feels like. But what is DHS, what is their role big picture on these kinds of procurement policy questions? Yeah, role big picture, and that's a great question. And I mean, even, for example, looking at the uh, Federal Acquisition Council and the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Council, you know, DHS is sort of inextricably linked as one of the central characters in that. As it's proposed in the interim final rule that's out there, DHS is the executive agent for information sharing for critical supply chain information. So DHS, while not the center, um, a lot of these are focused on other procurement bodies, OMB, GSA, DSA, DHS is one of the principal seats at the table, really looking at those threat and vulnerability sections. I think from my time at DHS, and to include what I picture, I think the issue that you brought up, we have a lot of sort of disparate bodies and organizations, whether it's run through the DNI, the DOD, the GSA, the OMB, directed by Congress that are all sort of studying the work of art from different angles. I think sort of consolidation is inevitably going to happen. I think DHS stands ready to offer sort of the technical advice and guidance that they have to these acquisition surveys, especially where it comes to civilian side architecture. And I do think that's where we, if I had to forecast, I do think that is one area where you will start to see these same types of acquisitions that we are sort of, that you mentioned DOD is sort of spearheading, slowly start to creep out into civilian architecture because the work and interoperability of these agencies, they're truly inextricably linked. Like you can't sort of differentiate some of the work that NIST and Commerce, for example, are doing from some of the sensitive security work that DHS is doing. Going back to the EMP, electromagnetic pulse. I mean, energy, which is a Title 50 community member, but some of the more studying research and development organizations and work that they're doing, those same sorts of protections, mitigations, and measures, I think, are going to be applicable. And then, again, if I had to forecast where we're seeing this coming, I think we can expect to see some of those measures potentially coming down the pike on civilian side architecture. 
Yeah. I mean, we've said for years, I remember doing work eight years ago saying that whatever the government does from a procurement side, whatever DOD puts in motion is really the tip of the spear for the private sector. And so if companies are looking to understand where they may end up, what the expectations may look like for them in, say, five years, I'd be looking at what DOD is doing now to take it back to the vulnerability disclosure point you mentioned earlier, Right. There's an open request by DOD right now for input onto a pilot program that they want to roll out with 20 members of the defense industrial base. I have some concerns about how that's shaping up. I don't love the the government having threat hunting capabilities in private sector networks, even if they are defense contractors. I think there's a lot of complexity there, but I think those concepts, they'll be sort of the proof of concept is led by DOD and the government, and then it sort of percolates out to the rest of the private sector. Megan, that's actually a very astute observation, and I think the dynamic that- Thank you. um, (laughs) that I witnessed when I was a part of the department is while DOD, because of its unique mission and mandate and national security role, has always had a more aggressive and directive role in some of these acquisition, there's never been sort of the DOD equivalent on the civilian side of things that would look at sort of the fresh snow that DOD has really trodden through to be able to look at what they're doing, understand sort of the threats and vulnerabilities, but translate that to a civilian space. Like you brought up the vulnerability disclosure where it's very directive as far as a pilot program. I mean, DHS through CISA, they have theirs for civilian networks. But when you talk specific about threat hunting teams, CISA also has threat hunting teams that they are available. It is a service though. It is not a directive service. It is a service that CISA offers. So it's DOD-like, but more tailored towards the civilian world. Yeah. So let's actually talk for a minute. You brought up CISA. I just want to close out one or two things that are on my mind about CISA. One is sort of incident response and sort of what you would say. A lot of companies, the first thing they think of in the middle of a ransomware attack or something else is not, let me call my friendly DHS officer and talk to them about what I'm experiencing. That said, can you shed a little light on what DHS does and what you see the expectations are from the government? We have seen companies sort of get their knuckles wrapped a bit for not calling the government some part of the government when they're experiencing something significant or they identify a vulnerability that could affect government customers as well as private sector customers. So can you maybe just give us a flavor of what CISA does with respect to incident response type issues? For folks that are looking for it, CISA actually has a full suite. It's a catalog of information and services that they can offer to the private sector. And it's everything from sort of threat hunting and incident response to vulnerability testing. And and there are services that CISA offers through the, the 10 regions, which map onto the FEMA 10 regions, that they can offer to private sector organizations. I think one of the crucial things that we've seen, especially if some of the proposals in the NDAA come to pass, is an influx of capabilities and resources, not necessarily authorities, but resources to CISA to really beef up its regional presence across the country to be able to be that service delivery point for those companies and organizations. Going back to where I think CISA is looking to stand up and be that capability more inclined to 
private sector cooperation. I think that's what CISA wants. I know one of the largest strategic initiatives that the department and CISA is looking at, especially once they get past election season, one of the biggest vulnerabilities, and you brought it up, is ransomware. I think the way we can see and the way we have seen ransomware attacks sort of perpetuate through the ecosystem, leaping across different sectors, whether it be financial and the ability to sort of perpetuate and freeze operations. I think one of the things that CISA in particular wants to do is that information sharing. And and aside from the threat hunting and sort of mitigation activities and the vulnerability uh, assessment activities, CISA runs their automated indicator sharing program, which is is a voluntary program that private sector organizations can sign up for where they can get sort of automated threat information sort of sent to them on what they're seeing. But these are very service based capabilities that CISA does want to offer. And again, this is to engender that public private partnership. And I understand the mistrust. It's the old dark suit showing up at the door. We're from the government and we're here to help. But I think CISA's approach and philosophy as they approach some of these is to truly believe that the resilience and the mitigation is its mission. It's not punitive. And this gets back to not being a regulatory agency in and of itself. Right. No, that's really helpful. I mean, I think there has been some policymakers have been a little skeptical about the uptake and the efficacy of, say, the automated indicator sharing. I'm curious for your thoughts. One thing we have been and many others have been pressing the government on is to get better and more nimble about sharing, for example, in the supply chain context, information at a non-classified level about emergent supply chain risks. And I think this difficult question is caught up in all of the supply chain discussions that are ongoing, but sort of, are you optimistic or neutral about the ability of both DHS and other agencies to sort of break through that, whether it's a cultural and some legal barriers to make it easier to communicate threat information, not just sort of malware signatures or indicators of compromise, sort of the big picture, hey, we're worried about this region or this company. It's complicated, but what are your thoughts on whether the government's going to be able to get better about that? I am optimistic, but skeptical. I'll tell you honestly, I think there has been a rush and you talk about sort of, if we just look at supply chain threats, sort of in a vacuum in and of itself. I think there are a lot of people, both external to the executive branch, up in Congress, outside organization, industries, who are looking at it and studying the problem and understand the need for that sort of threat and vulnerability. And the private sector, I'm sure, feels at a competitive disadvantage because they are working in the dark without knowing that type of information when you're having to construct sort of acquisition supply chains for large capital intensive projects that take two and three years to ramp up and ramp down simple vulnerabilities in a supply chain that you are setting up for something that's not coming online for three years. If you don't know there's geographic regions where that technology is emanating from, it is difficult to do a planning cycle. I do think the federal government recognizes that. I think they recognize it is a gap. It is a deficiency that potentially needs to be addressed. And I think it's sort of recognized in the federal government, but also up in Congress. Where I do remain a little bit skeptical is the federal government has always been very circumspect in sharing details about threat information. And I think part of it is cultural, like you said. Some of them can be from collection platforms that are disparate overseas. 
and there are natural sensitivities around there. But I think one of the things that they're potentially looking at are ways to sort of summarize or bring the information up to a higher level to give broad swaths of threat information. And that's where, like looking at the Federal Supply Chain Task Force that feeds into the Acquisition Council, that's where some of these information sharing pieces do fit together. I believe CISA wants to look at that to be able to sort of sanitize and put out that level of threat information. Where it gets tricky for the federal government is what is the level of information that becomes tactical and operational for the private sector to work on? It is a broad gray area with a very discrete point where it, it has utility and where that discrete point is, is anybody's guess. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I think you and I, you on the receiving end from the private sector and us from the sending end, hearing these and seeing these messages from the private sector that, that this is a hard problem, but it's one that needs a solution. If you're going to get the private sector to be able to be nimble and not be surprised and have a lot of sunk costs, right? We spent a lot of time this summer unpacking the WeChat and TikTok executive order, which are a little destabilizing for certain companies and certain organizations. And from my perspective, certain parts of the economy understood back in 2012 that the government was getting very concerned about Huawei, but a lot of the rest of the country didn't. And so there really is a need to ensure that that information properly caveated and with its limitations can be disseminated to decision makers in the private sector, because it's challenging to have to pivot late in the game, as you described. Sure. Last question, and then we'll wrap it up, is if you were the Secretary of Homeland Security for a day, what would be your priorities and what would you do to the department's mission? First and foremost, in my opinion, that's one of the toughest jobs in the federal government, just based upon sort of the depth and breadth of the DHS mission. And truth be told, we covered some of the broader areas, the intel, law enforcement, immigration, cybersecurity, critical incident response, hurricane response, Coast Guard. Each one of these missions are unique in and of themselves. And each one is a no-fail mission, to tell you the truth. And when the safety and security of the nation relies on how both you plan and operationalize across these very unique mission sets is crucially important. Based upon my recent experience and tour through the department, both is sort of the cyber and infrastructure protection side, I think some of the areas that we talked about in some of the strategic directions, and I think maybe I'm selfishly saying this because I just came from sort of the leadership cadre at the department, the continued emphasis on these resilience activities, the public-private partnerships, and really viewing Homeland Security not necessarily as solely a government function, but as a community and a societal function, I think are going to be crucial. Where you have, and like we were talking about in the critical infrastructure space, where you have so much critical infrastructure owned and operated by private sector entities, they are first responders they, to, to a lot of these critical incidents. The success of the government's mission in very much is inextricably linked to the ability of those organizations to respond. And that goes from everything to helping them plan, conduct tabletop exercises, crisis management type of activities, but also like we were just talking about, disseminating what the department really sees as sort of those threats and vulnerabilities that are coming down the pike. The other thing that I would really look at, and you touched upon it a little bit with sort of the Huawei situation, I think the department, again, it is in the toddler phase, but I think the department would really start to benefit. And there are offices and aspects of the department that are starting to look in this direction, is doing a little bit of 
horizon scanning? What are the threats that are coming down the pipe? What is our threat profile as a country and as a department going to look like in five to 10 years? And you can look at sort of emerging technology sectors just in isolation and alone, where you have for example, artificial intelligence, there's discrete benefits to the department's ability to leverage AI systems to conduct its operations. But conversely, what is sort of the lowering costs and readily availability of AI systems? How does that change the threat picture to the department and to the nation itself? I think it's one of those interesting two-sided questions that DHS is really starting to look at and wrestle with. You can look at quantum computing. I mean, some of the IoT work, each one of these can be full podcasts and discussions in and of themselves. But with the department having the role and responsibility that it does, they not only need to look at the present and react to these incidents, I think looking at how that threat evolves and develops and disseminating that information so the private sector is not caught unawares when five years from now, the department says, oh, AI, for example, is one of the biggest threats that we have out there. And the private sector has been planning for four years to, to go in this direction. We may have seen that in the 5G, but I think having that ability to future cast and communicate what we are looking at, I think is going to be one of the important missions. And it's going to really bolster the overall baseline resilience levels that I think DHS has been concentrating on. Well, great. Sam, this has been super fun. And now you're roped in. I think we've discussed five or six future podcasts that we're going to have to do. <laughs> so you're committed and locked in. So our listeners have that to look forward to. But we are delighted that you are now part of the firm. And I look forward to being able to help our clients with your wisdom and insight. And so thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And we look forward to visiting with you on our next Wiley Connected podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.